This is the Atlanta Foodcast. Stories from those making Atlanta the greatest city for eaters. I'm Ben Getz, your host. Well, hey, everyone. And, you know, it's nice to actually have a regular sort of episode of the podcast right now. And here's a story from someone who you may not uh, know too much about. And um, it is the story of Matt Hinton, who is the owner and founder of Bell Street Burritos. And if you're anything like me and you've been living in Atlanta for long enough, uh, Bell Street is the regular haunt uh, for a burrito or a quesadilla. Um, Great for your kids, whatever, probably on a weekly basis. And Matt's story is wonderful and uh, mysterious in in a really great way. Uh, A guy who did not just grow up in the restaurant industry or go to culinary school and found his way into the business in a very interesting way. Um, I've known Matt for a little while now and uh, hearing this story firsthand, um, albeit uh, from a distance, and hearing bits and pieces here and there over the past couple months. Um, it's a really cool episode, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy his story. So if you have some time, buckle in, and uh, here is Mr. Matt Hinton of Bell Street Burritos. Enjoy, guys. And another really cool thing before we kick off this episode is the music that you're actually listening to right now is from Matt's band. Uh, it's a band the, by the name of Luxury, and the track that you're listening to is called Parallel Love. So enjoy. Um, but you know, this is obviously a departure from my typical format of sitting in your place of business across the table from you and you divulging your story and we get to talk about, you know, your business, but, um, but I won't bury this anymore for everybody. Um, and Matt, remind me, remind me how to pronounce your last name. Hinton, H-I-N-T-O-N. Okay. So Matthew or Matt Hinton, um, you are the owner and proprietor of Bell Street Burritos, which I loved whenever whenever I've like just searched for something or Googled. Uh, I think recently when I just wanted to place an order online, um, it says Atlanta's number one or voted Atlanta's number one burrito. Yes. And um, so you are, you're the number one burrito, man. You're the number one. You are the number one burrito. I am. In Atlanta. But welcome to the show, Matt. How you doing? Thank you. I'm good. How are you? I, I can't complain, man. Um, it was a sunny day or it's still a sunny day and it played is. outside with my kids. And, um, and now I'm doing the other thing that I do pretty yeah. often, which is podcasting, which we've decided is a huge waste of time. Absolutely. So yes. Um, let's do it. Well, Matt. Yeah. So I know a little bit of your background just from spending an inordinate amount of time in your restaurant, but let's um let's hear a little bit of your story so i guess what i want to do is because i haven't had a chance to ask this question in a while but let me ask you the um the inescapable first question that most of my guests receive which is tell me who cooked for you growing up and what kind of cook was he or she uh who cooked for you if i were to say it was a barred owl would you believe me I, I mean, you know, the, this the the world's your oyster, Matt. You can answer that question however you like. Do you understand that reference, by the way? Um, n- I know what a barred owl is, so but a, no, I don't. The barred owl famously hoots in the following way: "Who cooks for you? Who ah. cooks for you?" 
that's how you know gotcha. that it's a bar dial. It says oh, who man. cooks for you. I have a I have a nice vision of how this interview is going to go. So I'm very <laughs> I'm very excited. There's 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 no foreshadowing needed. Oh, we, we're so all bad. yeah. We're all along. We're all along with this now. Right. So, right. So, okay. Uh, Continue. So, no. So no. It's in fact, it's not true that a bard owl cooked for me. I, you know, uh, I guess there were different phases of my childhood. Uh, somewhere, my uh, both of my parents were working, and sometimes it was just my dad working, um, and. Uh, and so I have different associations at different times, but the consistent thing that ran through was, so I had I have two uh, sets of grandparents, one up in rural North Carolina, the other in Atlanta, though, uh, though my grandparents on the Georgia side were um, from Lawrenceville and Decula, respectively. And um, so it just so happens that my grandmothers were the two best cooks in the nation. Mm. Uh, and, uh, so I lucked out in that respect. So, uh, that being the case, whenever there was a big, uh, a, you know, a Christmas, uh, Easter, Thanksgiving, what have you, we were cooked for by them. And that, uh, established, uh, my palate in a in a pretty decisive way and to this day mm. that that the stuff that i learned from them the cookery that i learned from them is the stuff that uh i'm most at home with and um and i'm that i'm best able to do uh mm. so uh cream corn turnip greens green beans that type of stuff biscuits those kinds of things that's my mm -hmm. uh that's my love language mm. were you a good eater growing up was i a good eater meaning did i eat uh well yeah i mean were, were you were you a non-picky eater you know i'm picky about the things i'm picky about but i'm not picky about that many things uh two of the things that i well i guess there are three main sort of things one is things connected to uh, mayonnaise on one mm. hand or sour cream on the other hand i have a difficult time abiding um mm. and i just want to eat it like i just it just for whatever reason well i know i mean sour cream particularly i just can't believe it i can't believe <laughs> i can't believe that people eat that stuff i can't believe you sour cream how dare you yep Goodness. so right so and then i'm allergic to fish I, I can gotcha. eat shellfish, uh, but I, uh, but the kind with gills, uh, mm. I'm allergic to. So, yeah. so those are the my, world is a mysterious place. Yeah. My, my parents were convinced that I was just, uh, I, I just didn't like fish. And actually to this day, my mom will occasionally say, oh yeah, you don't like fish as if <laughs> it has anything to do with me liking it. <laughs> uh, so, um, but no, I, I, I was a particular fan of green beans uh, growing up, um, and that was a real, and fried chicken. Um, and uh, I, I have fond memories of my, my dad making pasta sauce on occasion, just a sort of a hearty meat sauce. And mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, no, I, I, um, we certainly didn't eat out a lot when I was younger. 
so, um, yeah, yeah, no, I don't think I was uh, particularly picky at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's one of my favorite questions to ask people, you know, is just, you know, where, where was food coming from and what type of, what type of cook was that person? Um, you know, I had, I had a very different, um, background than most. So, I mean, it's one of my favorite questions to ask cause I was actually a very picky eater myself. Oh, were you? I didn't really, yeah, I didn't really start to enjoy food until I was an adult. So, hmm. um, you know, but it, it definitely, it, it's, it's the kind of thing that you don't always get a chance to reminisce, you know, with just people, you know, at right. work uh, throughout the day, you know, yeah, yeah. so you don't always just throw it back to like, man, you know, just my grandma or both of my grandmas, like they both had different, you know, kind of disciplines in the kitchen and one was biscuits and the other one was cornbread. The other one, the other one was like yeast risen bread. And the other one was, you know, only like hoe cakes, you know, like I love those kind of stories because, you know, I mean, I had friends in, when I lived in North Carolina, they grew up and they never even had seen a bagel. Right. You know, they're like, I only like breakfast. Like it was a biscuit, man. Like (laughs) it was only biscuits. They were like, you know, sometimes they were like angel biscuits or like, you know, um, only made with lard or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, probably the best biscuits in the world, For like sure. size of your head. But, you know, it's, it's a, it's crazy. You know, the, the regional aspect of our food in this country, um, especially here in Georgia, it's amazing to see, you know, where one grandparents or one, one set of grandparents was from the South or from the state of Georgia, Savannah, Columbus, whatever. Yep. And then another set of grandparents were from New York, you know, or right. California or, you know, Washington or central USA. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I had it's just pretty really much, interesting. I had pretty much the same thing coming at me from both directions uh, cool. as far as that went. And uh, though mm-hmm. I would say that my, my grandmother on my, uh, my, my Atlanta grandmother her specialty was cream corn. And to mm. this day, that's the best thing that I'm able to do. Um, yeah. In any respect, probably. Like, that's the one thing that in any area of my life, that's the best thing I can do. And and it's one of those things that is so rarely done well. Like, hardly yeah. anybody I know thinks cream corn as, like, even a good thing. They think <laughs> canned or something you'd get in a restaurant. I've never yeah. been to a restaurant that has... That has even, I mean, it's like the difference between um, a fresh tomato that you pull off of a vine on one hand and the thing you get in the grocery store. Those are different, almost almost at a molecular level, it seems to me. Just a different thing completely from one from yeah. the other. Similarly, cream corn that my grandmother made is so vastly different from anything that could come out of a can that you may as well have a different word for them. Yeah. Um, that's not a bad thing though. It's really not a bad thing at all. Well, it's, I mean, I wish <laughs> that it could get in a can because it's, it's right. really, it's like a lot, it's a very labor intensive uh, thing to do. Right. But I'm, yeah. but, and it's not that it's, it's not that it's complicated necessarily, though it requires a certain skill to get it right. Um, but it's very labor intensive if you're going to do a lot of it. And ordinarily, I'll do a whole case at a time, which is, well, maybe 60 ears at a time for, you know, Easter and Thanksgiving, what have you. And yeah. um, uh, so that's yeah, that's a commitment to do that because of the way that mm-hmm. you have to cut it. Um, yeah. Uh, it, so it's not that difficult, but it's so good that it's inexpressibly good. There are certain people that will be listening to this who know what I'm talking about. 
Mm-hmm. And then everybody else can't even imagine how cream corn could ever be uh, particularly good. And but boy, I tell yes. you. So anyway, boy, now that's that's the best ending statement is boy, I tell you. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. well, I you know again, I mean, it's just one of my favorite things is to you know have people on and just hear you know part of their background, but you know, and then kind of springboarding that question and. You know, talking about the more recent past of your life, um, you, sir, have a very interesting um, professional life and background and set of skills and um, all types of things. So let me let me ask you this, I guess, in this way. Mm-hmm. I want to know how you made it to owning a... Um, you know, well, you've had, you've had actually more than three. There was another Bell Street location, um, you know, and... It's just very interesting because you're not you're you're you've not like you you've not been like a restaurateur your whole life, um, you know it's it's really it's really interesting to hear parts of your story. So let's do this. Let me ask you like how did you how did you come to opening Bell Street and talk to mm-hmm. me a little bit about the inspiration, yeah. but also talk to me about some of the other aspects of your life from a professional standpoint because uh, you've you've done a lot of very interesting things in this world so um yeah so kinda. yeah so uh <laughs> i'll take over from there uh so uh i guess first i would say first of all maybe it's relevant that i do not consider myself to be a foodie and I don't mean that in the way that hipsters don't consider themselves to be hipsters, but I mean that in a very profound way. That in the, I love food. Like when I love food, I love it. But, um, uh, but I, I think that my tastes are very pedestrian in a way, um, very lowest common denominator in a lot of respects. And uh, I love. Uh, coca-cola i love mcdonald's well maybe i don't love mcdonald's but sometimes it's the right thing certainly i know what you mean certainly their fries are Mm -hmm. uh if it's past midnight crystal is often the way to go um uh there's certain the things that i like best are are just very sort of low rent kind of things i love a good meat and three there are hardly any in the atlanta area anymore there used to be a few good ones um but if the place is dirty, then I'm more likely to be into it, probably. Not because it's dirty, but because, for whatever reason, there's a correlation between good food and, and some dirt laying around. Um, and uh, the, the, and I don't, I, for, I could never, I couldn't tell you the first thing about any of the chefs in Atlanta. I don't know who they are. I don't know anything about sort of the sort of popular restaurants um i just don't other than you know mcdonald's and popeyes and that kind of thing i mean the things that I, that that are sort of independent that i like a good bit are are you know eats and matthew's cafeteria and tucker and and that kind of stuff uh and we like grindhouse and we like uh grant central um and uh the earl makes a good hamburger and and stuff like that but if it's if it costs more than ten dollars for a person like that's when we're really getting into fancy territory in my household so um 
So in that regard, I'm probably different from a lot of people that you interview. I have no training as a cook or anything like that. Um, so I'm just, I'm, uh, I don't know. There are probably like 10 restaurants in Atlanta that we, that are on our kind of rotation. Um, and, uh, and whenever I, whenever I wind up going to a fancy restaurant, which is maybe once a year, um, if that, I mean, it depends on what you mean by fancy. The thing that quali- that counts as fancy for me is if my family of five, if it costs us $40 or more, then that's, that's where, when we're getting into, this must be a special occasion situation. So, um, uh, so, uh, having said that, um, I'm probably an unlikely sort of person to be in this business, I would say. Um, and, uh, though I think that there are probably some benefits of being kind of pedestrian, um, because mm-hmm. I sort of have maybe a better handle on what regular people are into, I guess. Also, oh, what I was going to say is whenever I do go to a fancy restaurant, like a genuinely fancy restaurant, all I can see is like, oh, the, the, uh, you know, the crown molding, they didn't do a good job on the, on the corners there. Or like, I just start <laughs> noticing like all the problems with it. And, uh, and it's just like, it's probably not healthy. Uh, cause it's like, if I'm paying this kind of money, like what, you know, I don't know. I, I just never wind up enjoying it very much. Um, uh, maybe somebody else needs to pay for it or I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's a, maybe it's an acquired skill or, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe you could help me. You should probably take me out to eat sometime. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, but your your actual question was how I got into it. Is that right? Yes. So, um, so I was uh, a, a a college professor. I was I taught religion at Morehouse College and Spelman College. Uh, for several years and uh, had been teaching in various uh, contexts for a good 15 or 20 years at that point from the time I finished grad school at Emory and uh, did did, uh, undergraduate at Georgia State and then grad school at at Emory. And um, so I was just trucking along minding my own business teaching religion which I was very content with. And I would say since I was um, maybe some, at some point in high school, uh, I could have told you that I would probably be a college professor. Uh, that seemed to be the direction that I was heading intellectually. And uh, not meaning like that I had great intellect, but that that was just sort of where my curiosity and interest was leading me. And... Uh, Gotcha. Or playing rock and roll, and those were the two main interests that I had in my life was music and and uh, you know reading and and what have you. So uh, so I I and then probably twelve years ago, if you had asked me, okay, what are the what things would you be satisfied doing with your life? Um, I had probably a list of of. 10 things or so, many of which I had already done. I had, you know, when you're a teacher, it is often the case that, well, you've got, you know, maybe summers off or what have you. So you have to fill your time with something. So in my Mm -hmm. case, it was things like filmmaking or photography or, 
you know, I sold architectural antiques. I uh, uh, renovated houses, uh, did construction. Um, any of those kinds of things I was very interested in and, and would be satisfied uh, doing. And um, uh, I had this other list of things I never, ever wanted to do. And one of them was working in a restaurant. That was near the top of my list of things that I never was, <laughs> never would want to do. So uh, the there's so there's some dramatic irony here, is what we're talking about. So uh, in 2008-2009, uh, there was a recession, which you probably heard about, <laughs> and and one of the results of that recession was that um, was that. Uh, Morehouse in particular, being a private school, uh, had uh, somewhat diminished um, enrollment. And because of that, there was a class that I ordinarily taught that was not going to be available that semester. And uh, and so they said, you know, you've got your other classes, but this one class, there, you know, it needs seven students and you've got five. And I couldn't drum up the other two. So I needed to come up with some, some kind of way of making some extra dough between you know, just in that period of time. I didn't want to lose my other Morehouse and Spelman classes, so um, uh, so I needed something that was going to be temporary and something that didn't occupy a ton of my time. And so, you know, I, despite the fact that I declare that I'm not a foodie, I, I've always enjoyed cooking. There are a handful of things I can cook well, and I've always enjoyed that. I'm usually pretty good at at imitating the things that I've had other places, and can usually come kind of close to to making something quite like it. So um, I had thought in the past, like, wouldn't it be interesting to be a like a private what do you call it, like a private chef for somebody, or like a group of families where I'm making their you know three of their meals a week or something like that. And that idea led me down the path of thinking about about burritos. And in particular, I was thinking about a restaurant that had you're you haven't been in Atlanta long enough, but there was a shop called Tortillas uh, on Ponce, back when Ponce was Ponce, and Tortillas was. Um, it's difficult to express the the. Uh, the place that it occupied in the hearts of most kind of younger people that we knew anyway at the time. This was, they opened in 1983, I think, 83, 84, something like that, mm -hmm. and were the first uh, mission-style burrito shop uh, in that was east of the Mississippi. So the guys that, that formed it, that that started it the main guy was a guy named charlie who uh but he and bob uh, as i understand it uh uh came here from san francisco and i think that it was a particular place called taqueria la cumbre which uh uh is still there in the mission district and in, in uh, uh in san francisco that they were especially inspired by and uh, and I've been to that place, and it's like, oh yeah, that's I can see where that was coming from. That it had the same basic DNA. So 
they started this place in 8384, whatever it was. And it was just, I mean, the the food scene, if you want to call it that, in the early 90s, when I started going, was so different than it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody was concerned, in terms of like hip, kind of young places, nobody was concerned about decor, nobody was concerned about about fancy food or whatever. It was food for sort of starving artists, as it were. Most of the people that worked there played in rock and roll bands and um uh and and it was it was a similar vibe to that of eats which they opened together as well eats is still there and that is run by the other guy bob that i mentioned he bought charlie out a few years ago and so now that's strictly his thing and charlie also owns uh the local and and though in that in that building uh he tried a couple of other concepts including a, a tortillas takeout over there. They were so inundated, like they were selling so much food that they had to create this tortillas takeout next door to just get them out the door kind of thing. So, wow. Uh, and then that was in half of that building. The other half was at various times a thing called the Blue Lantern, uh, which sold... Um, well, the main thing that I had there was this chicken pesto sandwich, that which was so good. And um, uh, and then they and then there were Shea Ponce and that had breakfast and they would share some of the stuff with 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 tortillas. So I would get these breakfast quesadillas there that were so good. So um, anyway, but tortillas, everybody loved it. If you were, you know, I mean, I hardly knew anybody that didn't go there at least once a week and often it often probably three and four times a week. I certainly would. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the 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 uh, second meal that one, my wife and I had after we got married on our way <laughs> to the airport to go on a honeymoon to England, we said, we got to have tortillas one more time. Um, do you want to know what the first thing was? Um, the night we got married, I don't know, I'm not even going to wait to find out if you want to know, because I'm just going to tell you. The night you well, I don't even have a guess. You, right. The, <laughs> the night that we got married, uh, it, late at night, we realized, well, we're still hungry. And uh, and all I really wanted was the majestic, and this was in the day <laughs> when they were really they did a great job with southern food at the time. So I wanted fried chicken and turnip greens and green beans, and this was back when old ladies would serve you there while smoking, like literally they'd be have a cigarette dangling out of their lips, and um, uh, and it was great. Uh, that place was fantastic. Um, so still there uh yeah yeah it's right over there at the at, i mean it's been there since 1929 or something like mm-hmm. that it's over there yeah. where the plaza theater the date is. yeah it's it's like it's like part of the part of the neon or part of the masthead that they have that's right um, it, it's amazing that's yeah. right so so okay a moment ago you said still there i thought you were asking me if it was still there but you were saying it was still there as a declarative statement so yeah, like as in you can still well, yes, you know, I'm whatever. clarifying all in my things. Mind. All things considered, yep. right now. So, um, so getting whatever. getting back to the point, uh, when I was thinking about how, like how I was going to make some dough, I said, um, well, everybody I know miss. Oh, well, I should back up for a second. So tortillas went out of business roughly at the time that Moe's and Willie's started to. Uh, 
to take over. Right. The public, uh, the public remarks about it that I remember uh, from the ownership of tortillas was words to the effect that the burrito wars had been fought and had been won by Moe's and uh, and from not from a taste point of view but from a uh, they're just sort of taking over kind of thing so um, and so he decided to just you know pack it in yeah. uh, which in my estimation was a terrible mistake because I think absolutely tortillas would have would have persisted just fine uh, despite any other competition but in 2008 2009 tortillas had at that point been closed for eight or nine years and everybody i knew missed it so much and i said well you know i can make food maybe maybe i should try to to make tortilla style burritos and i'll deliver them to people's houses and that's what i'll do so uh, i kind of toyed around with it some got to the point where I thought I was probably about 90% there to like getting the, an accurate, like getting a burrito that tasted like a tortillas style burrito. Looking back on probably the reality was that I was maybe 75 or 80% at that point. But uh, anyway, I put it out there. I told friends that if they uh, bought, if they ordered burritos on Sunday or by Sunday, I would deliver them to them to their house. Uh, between the hours of 4.30 and 6, or between 4.30 and 6.30, something like that, uh, Mm -hmm. on Mondays. So uh, I, uh, so every Monday, I would get up, go down to the Georgia State Farmer's Market in Forest Park, buy all the stuff I needed to buy, and, uh, and turn my, you know, my kitchen at home into a, a commercial kitchen for, a day doing all the prep work and so on and then as close to 4:30 as possible i would roll as many burritos as i could as quickly as possible so that they would be hot when i delivered them and then hmm. i would put them in a very suspicious looking white cargo van from my you know architectural antiques and construction work kind of days and uh which i guess i, mean, I was still selling at that point and um uh, i would throw them in the back of the van put a bunch of blankets on top of them to keep them warm and would uh, would do a route that basically, I live in West End, so I would drive straight to downtown Decatur and start there. I'd have a couple of people who I would do these very suspicious looking drops at the um, uh, Dairy Queen in uh, downtown Decatur, which is mm-hmm. no longer a standalone building, but in the parking lot there, uh, we would I'd meet up with people who were just outside of my zone. And so I'd, you know, back my, my van in and, and you'd, we'd swap, you know, <laughs> the stuff, the goods. You got to you gotta back it in. You can't just That's pull right, right in. Yeah, you got to back it in. Of course. Yeah. So, uh, and, uh, and then there would be, and so that would go up the DeCab, uh, Cab Avenue corridor and hit, you know, Oakhurst and Lake Clare and, Candler Park and and Kirkwood, and then make it into little Five Points area, and there'd be some sort of Midtown and and Virginia Highland people that that were off of my map. So I would uh, meet up with those people at um, outside of Criminal Records when it was in the old location near Savage mm. Pizza. So yeah. um, and then I would make it 
down to East Atlanta and then into Grant Park and then I would come back Goodness to West gracious. End. How many burritos were you rolling? You uh, at the most, maybe 120 or so. Goodness gracious. And, uh, uh, sometimes but were people the, buying multiples, though? Or oh, people yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, give me their, four, give yeah, me four, give me five. Yeah, it's their whole family. It's, you know, it's four oh to six God. or something like that. So uh, first day, it was 80-something uh, that I had to make. And understand, I had no idea what I was doing. Like on a deeply profound level, I had no clue what I was doing at all. So... And maybe you, if I were to ask you, how many pounds of dried beans do you need to make 80 burritos? That's a tough one, right? Right. Like that's Like what? I don't know what the answer to that is. Or I didn't. I don't either. I didn't know what the answer to that was. So, you know, that first day was a complete disaster because for starters, like you need, you need to give yourself four hours to cook your beans. Okay. So... I get to a head. I get to give myself a head start. Start early. I didn't want anything to go wrong. I knew that I needed to get out at the right time, and probably. I mean, it, it must have been three thirty or four o'clock. So remember, I'm. I need to leave in around an hour or thirty minutes from that point. All of a sudden, I start smelling a burning smell. Oh God. And what had happened was the beans had burned. And I don't just mean, like, when you, it's like, what is that? And and so you stir and you realize, oh, it's like the bottom. There's something <laughs> on the bottom. And like an idiot, I sort of <clears throat> scraped it to see, oh, like, no. what's going on. And, of course, that releases all the burnedness into oh, yeah. the whole pot. So there's no way Not around nice that. flavor. So all of a sudden, I'm, like, getting out pressure cookers and, like, trying to, like, do a new batch. So I wind up, I'm not even leaving that first day until 7 o'clock, 6.30 or 7 o'clock, oh when, by the point at which I'd already promised everybody. And and this is, by the way, before I had like a smartphone or whatever. So I'd already like plugged everybody's uh, addresses into Google Maps or Yahoo Maps or one of these things and had printed it out. <laughs> you had individual pages, didn't you? Total. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. And, and so with the directions, right? Take a right, right on, you know, from here, take a right on whatever. And, um, uh, but it was, it. so this was fall semester. So it was, you know, got dark early. And I just, I remember like just creeping up these streets trying to read my my writing on the thing and like not having any and then trying to find addresses and it was i was practically in tears by the end of it it was <laughs> and and going up to people's homes and there was you know it's probably 20 places i had to deliver to yeah and toward the end like some people were like you know like i appreciate you bringing it out but that was our dinner like that was our dinner tonight it's nine o'clock that was our dinner we have children and yeah. <laughs> I can't tell you how, like, I can't even think about it now without feeling just humiliated to this day. And for whatever reason, I did it the next week. And for the life of me, I cannot think of why I did it again. Because that first time was so awful. But how long did you keep doing it for, Matt, until you actually got around to opening a location? Dude, like, so for starters, I had to do it that that whole semester, right? Right. It was miserable. Like, it wasn't fun at all. And then coming back and like having to clean everything. And, right. you know, my wife had, you know, we had two young kids at the time. And 
she didn't exactly love me doing it and i wound up like <laughs> taking over my parents kitchen and you know they thankfully they were kind enough to like you know clean up after me after i you know after i ruined their kitchen and um <laughs> so the ne- i could not wait for the next semester to come around everything get to get back to normal again uh and lo and behold uh it did not get back to normal and but interestingly at this so it was the same problem same class not available like oh what am i going to do and around that same time i was starting to get telephone calls from the from the ajc and from atlanta magazine and creative loafing people wanting to write stories about what i was doing because they found it interesting or whatever and uh and i think that it was interesting on a couple of different levels to them one was like you know people writing stories as they are doing now about like okay how are people staying how are small businesses you know functioning during the recession and and Mm -hmm. you know here's one local man who's found an interesting whatever that kind of thing but when I was having these conversations with them, when they would call me, I'm like, wait a sec, I don't, like, I think maybe this isn't legal. I think that it's, <laughs> in fact, I think it's illegal. And I don't know that I want this to really get, uh, you know, in the AJC. I don't want the, you know, the Johnny Law to show up and kick my, <laughs> kick the door down. I mean, I don't know. They're going to do that over burritos, but I, but like on a no, on a number of levels, I think it was not altogether uh, savory uh, from a legal point of view. So, mm-hmm. so that was sort of the point where I'm like, well, I've got it. Like on one hand, on one hand, like I've got this problem with like not having enough classes, but on the other hand, it feels like there's a little bit of um, there's a, the iron is kind of hot on the on this stuff because there's some real potential for some decent publicity on it mm-hmm. and uh so maybe i don't know maybe i go to legit on the burrito shop so uh uh christian lauterbach do you know her oh yeah so uh she's fantastic of course and she uh was an early uh supporter and she said listen you need to open a shop over here at the curb market over the sweet auburn curb market that's like yeah. that's going to be the next big thing and uh she had already talked to pam who runs it and sure enough there was a space available and so i took all the money in the world that i had uh, which was seven thousand dollars and i you know having a construction background i was able to build it out myself so built it out and um uh, and there was some equipment laying around there from the Chinese place that had been there before. So I mm-hmm. bought that equipment from the curb market because they didn't need it. And um, and so I was able to get it all done for $7,000. And wow. I mean to tell you, uh, that's a good deal to get a Ooh, restaurant yeah. out of that. Though at the, t- <laughs> at the time, I was still thinking, like, look, this isn't a restaurant. This is just me doing that thing out of this little stand. Legally. <laughs> yeah, legally this time. And I was, wasn't delivering anymore, but like, okay, you can, but you know, it was just like Monday through Friday, lunch only kind of a scenario just because of the right. hours that the, that the market had at the time mm-hmm. uh, and to a degree still has. So, uh, so within about four months of being open there, we were named one of the top 10 burritos in the country by USA Today. And that, wow. that for me was sort of when it's like oh this just got real like what huh like what do i how do i what do i even do 
And um, so that was when we opened our first standalone location, which was uh, over on Howell Mill on the west side of town. We -hmm. were a relatively early adopter of that side of town, and it was going really well uh, until about six months into it, the landlord announced that he had sold the property to Advance Auto Parts, and we got the old heave-ho. And, um, and which was just sort of devastating at the time because I put all my money into it and had no prospects otherwise. And, um, so then we had the opportunity to move to another location that was, uh, in the old fourth ward neighborhood. And similarly, uh, that didn't work out. And that was about six or eight months into that one we were killing it we were killing it and uh and got the heave ho from there and i mean to tell you two two years in a row of that uh uh is not fun at all um Mm -hmm. to put money and and everything into a location and to have that happen and um so I guess I'm a stubborn dude or whatever or just couldn't figure out how to offload the thing. So um, so then we opened the Peachtree location. So if you're keeping track, we're up to location four at that point. Right. And, um, uh, and that did well, and that's still there. Then we opened the uh, location at uh, Krog Street, uh, and that's in the Stoveworks complex facing mm-hmm. the Beltline. So that is a Beltline location that opened well before the Beltline was there. Oh, yeah. So it, have, it was of limited value to be on the Beltline <laughs> when, and even after they had finished building the Beltline, like there was clearly a Beltline sitting right there, paved and ready to roll. They had construction fence up for another, I mean, over half a year. And finally, I'm like, what is going on? Like, we've got to, you know, this is killing me. Like hidden behind there not having you know the whole point of being there was the belt line and we were probably Mm -hmm. there for a easily a year maybe a year and a half before the belt line actually opened yeah i remember those days actually i mean that that we oh yeah we used to go before um i mean when it was just like a mud path you know and well thank you like the well yeah and the belt line underneath um edgewood um i mean it was just you know trash and gravel dirt path and yeah, dude. you know just a bunch of you know it was just street art and graffiti and um yeah i mean when you guys opened i was like oh this is a place that i've been to this up on peach tree okay. this is great yeah. so but just to just to like kind of recap and then i know uh, well, that you guys hold on let me i'll just Sorry, I, I i would be remiss if i didn't point out that we have uh have relatively recently opened a shop in tucker that's our first right outside the perimeter location Mm-hmm. And at the same time, closed the market, the curb market location, uh, uh, because there was just no way of like really making money in that, just with yeah. the time, with the the hours that it had, and so forth. If you're not working it yourself, you can't like pay other people and expect there to be any money left over. So, right. um, so for anyone counting, we're now up to six locations that we've opened with three, <laughs> with three still intact. Uh, still intact. So, yeah. But but you you went from like guy who likes rock and roll 
but also you're a religion professor. Mm -hmm. You do not have traditional or any sort of formal training. And then people really dig this burrito spot. Sorry, I'm just like recounting your whole story because I think it's fascinating. And this is the reason I wanted to talk to you, let alone, I mean, we eat um, eat a lot of Bell Street. um, A lot, trust me. Um, (laughs) So, you know, the, the interesting thing is like you go from... I'm a religion professor and I'm also into rock and roll, which you also play in a band, which is really great. And, um, and then there's this burrito place that opens and is, you know, kicking a lot of ass in Atlanta called tortillas. And then they close and you're like, you know what? I think it'd be fun to sell burritos and I want to make them like tortillas used to. And then you're doing it and you're selling these out of a van around like the East side of town. Yeah. And And bear in in mind, it's worth, I should point out, like when you put it that way, bear in mind that, um, for one thing, it's not like they went out of business and then I started. It was eight years later, so it was a right. long. Well, yeah, right. I, I know. And, I, and you mentioned that. Yeah, but I, I did. Mean, I did. But but the other thing that I didn't mention is that after doing like when I was even while I was still doing the delivery thing, I had to sort of ask myself, okay, am I just trying to be tortillas or am I trying to do something? Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, like I had to ask myself that question. I I finally arrived at the a conclusion, which was number one. I only had two things at tortillas ever. I had a chicken burrito and I had a chicken quesadilla. I never had any other thing that they had other than their salsa. So I don't know what yeah. their other stuff tasted like. So so that was, invent one, it. that was one piece of it. The other piece of it is that even with the like stuff that I did know, I felt like, well, if I could do it, if I could do it, what I thought was, you know, better still, like, why would I not attempt it? So, yeah. so I was over the, the tortillas angle before I even opened like the first Bell Street. Originally, it was called West End Burritos, by the way. That's a, mm. a little fact because I lived in West End. And yeah. um, uh, so anyway, so carry on. Well, you know, it's, it's just I, I love the I love the the story of like unlikely Atlanta resident starts burrito chain kind of story mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm obviously not after headline i'm after the steps that you took to get there and that's what i love about this is because you know a lot of people eat at bell street i mean you know it's it there's no question like if you want to go to i mean if you want to go to Moser willie's or chipotle like hey that's great but and i tell people like yeah i mean if you want a burrito that's fine but it's not a bell street burrito like to me like that is the that is the epitome of what a burrito in atlanta taste like or should taste like if you never had one and um and i mean that respectfully but i also mean that in a very practical way but mm-hmm. the steps that you took to to create your own your own business out of this is like there's two things is that it's it's kind of like throwback but also hearkening back to something that atlanta had and it was the best way that you could think to pay homage mm-hmm. to a place that you loved you're like dude this was like sure. this was the place that we hung out we ate there on my you know, right after we got married, like right before we went on our honeymoon, you know, and, but then there's the other side of it is that there's a lot of people that are doing business style in, in the similar fashion where it's like the cottage law where they're baking things in their home or making things in their home and then selling them and driving them around town. And like that, if anything, that has kind of sparked in the past couple of years. Hmm. And you were, you were doing that when there was a recession happening out of, you know, the, the measure of like, I, I kind of need to find a way to, Right, you know, make some money, and it's, and it's ordinarily, by the way, it's ordinarily not a great idea to open a restaurant during <laughs> yeah. a recession. Sure, it's not but. great to open a restaurant at any point. Honestly, mm-hmm. like if anybody's thinking that it'd be fun to have a restaurant, think again. 
Like it's yeah. it's it's not fun in games. It's a little, yeah. it's a serious amount of work. But and I know that you went through kind of like the timeline of them opening, and um, you know being named you know by USA Today, and then you know you've got you've got the curb market, and then you've got Peachtree, and then Krog, and now Tucker, and then you know, you're, you've got these three. And you know I I think that the thing that I love the most about your story, Matt, is that. You know, most of the people that I talk to, you know, it's it's either it's it's either there's a place that someone has opened or they've been a chef of some, you know, some background or they've worked with people. And it's it's kind of like the thing that makes up the dining DNA of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. But the story that you have is it's not even that it's just unlikely. It's that if you're not the like if I'm the one telling your story, someone's going to be like, I mean, am I supposed to believe all of that? You know, like, <laughs> right. Because be, just because, I mean, you know, I, 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 I grew up, both my parents are chefs. So if I started a restaurant, people would be like, well, yeah, yeah, of you course know, you did. I get it. Right. Yeah. I get it. I, I totally get it. Like, of course you, you couldn't go much further, you know, than the kitchen. Cause that's what raised you. But your story is so wonderfully unlikely to hear from another human being. That's why I love it. And it also happens to be, you know, I mean, a place that my children will have memories of because it's the, it's, that's our burrito place. Right. Like that's the place that we go for burritos. That's so, great. Yeah. I like that. But I mean, I just, I just love that story, man. Like I just, um, and I don't, I don't know how many people actually know that. I mean, I know a lot of people who obviously go to Bell Street, but, um, you know, I, I bet that if you just walked by them, they wouldn't think that you're the owner and that they obviously wouldn't know that whole tale, man. So, yeah, right. Um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, I am I'm not naive to the fact that it's a peculiar tale, and mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, yeah, it's you know like we got so much sort of press at the beginning, like when we got open, you sort of forget that oh yeah now there's a whole new batch of people there yeah you know million people or whatever that didn't live here then that do now, and. Um, so yeah, sometimes you have to kind of reset and retell the story, and I yeah. often forget that. To me, it's like, well, yeah, of course that's how it went, but right. Um, but yeah, there's no reason why anybody would know this, mm-hmm. really. Yeah, um, dude, I, I feel like there's there's more that we really need to talk through, but we've actually been recording for a little over fifty minutes, and I Sorry. unfortunately have to run. Oh, okay. Um, but this is, I mean, I think what we did is we probably just captured like everything that I need to like kind of have your story uh, or the story of bell street as it were Mm -hmm. but um can we do this can so let me let me work on this and i want to turn this into an episode because i think what i really love is you know a lot of your story um is uh is kind of part of like a crazy time in our in our country's history you Mm -hmm. know like how your your origin story the genesis of of bell street and you know i love the atlanta history um that you went through as well but um but let's do this let's um because who knows how long we're all going to be, you know, <laughs> doing this thing from from home or whatever. But yeah, let I'll me do this. Let me talk anytime. Well, yeah, and let, let's do this. Let me turn this into an episode, okay. and it, I think it'll be a very welcome respite. From I mean, you know, as much as I love catching up with people, you know, like just people who I've had on the show before. Like I, I chatted with like Tal from All Over Restaurant Group and Ian Winslade and Kevin from the Spotted Trotter, and I, I, I just a bunch of people. I was like, hey, I just I I kind of want to shorten the the distance a little bit and like 
talk to talk to me about what's going on with your restaurants and you're closed, but you're open. You're doing to go. You've pivoted your business to now do like prefix. And you know, there's, there's just a bunch of, there's a bunch of stuff happening. And I think people are just kind of still reeling after the past two weeks of like, what? Yeah. What is, just ha- what is happening? Yeah. Like what's normal now, yeah. you know? So I'm going to tire of that very quickly and I'm just going to want to get back into like hearing people's stories or hearing something, you know, and getting out of this, like, Oh, we had to shut down we had to like, let go 170 employees and Ugh. coronavirus and you know, uh, everybody's getting sick. And you know, what do we like, you know, stimulus package. And uh, you're like, you know what, after a while, it's like, I get it. Yeah. And, but if this has to be the new normal, that's fine. But I'm a kind of, I'm the kind of person that's just going to say like, you know what, let's focus on something that's positive because I like this being an escape yes. rather than you having to take your whole day reading CNN and Ugh. feeling yeah. so just trapped. Well, and I'm, then what I will anyway. say is that that the the just a couple of days ago I was talking to a buddy and it, that was really when it dawned on me. It's like, oh wait a second, Bell Street was made for this. Like this is mm-hmm. like this is pers- this is very similar conditions that we began under. So like it's we've always been about like how to manage crisis and it started in crisis and so uh it's you know causing us to to make some changes and so on but it's this is uh this is our sweet spot well many thanks to matt for sitting with me um from a distance and telling me his story um there's obviously a lot more to hear uh we probably could have chatted for another hour and covered, um, you know, even more of, uh, of how this whole story has unfolded over the years. So uh, Matt and I will catch up over the next uh, couple couple weeks or so, and you guys will hear a little bit more from him. Um, and much like a lot of other businesses in Atlanta right now, Bell Street is doing to go pretty much only um, from all their locations, and their menu remains pretty much the same. So. If you're interested in placing an order online and picking it up um, or even getting it delivered, you obviously can. Um, and while they can, and while they're still doing it, definitely check it out. They have you know some of their items available for kind of a market or pantry style of purchase. So you can buy eggs and avocados and beans and all that kind of stuff to outfit your kitchen at home. So again, many thanks to Matt for joining me for this episode. And you guys stay safe. And I will wash my hands if you do. Thanks for listening to the Atlanta Foodcast. If you haven't already, hit subscribe and please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram. And as always, thanks for making Atlanta the greatest city for eaters.